Good evening and, and welcome back because it's been a bit of a break here for our Sunday evening Bible study series. So it's good to be back with you and I'm very much looking forward to resuming and home stretch finishing this series on baptism. Baptism really is a much misunderstood and often underappreciated aspect of the Christian life. So we've gathered here to study the Bible, set the record straight, both on what God's Word says about baptism and how it's meant to impact our lives. That's a bit easier said than done, though, because the New Testament has a lot to say about baptism. Not so much that it's like the biggest topic in the New Testament, but it's very diverse. It has many different things to say about baptism. And to further complicate matters, it's not always talking about the same baptism. And as we've studied, there are seven different types of baptism mentioned in the New Testament. Baptism in Christ, baptism in the Holy Spirit, baptism of fire, baptism of suffering, baptism for the dead, John the Baptist baptism, and then the church's water baptism. So that's a lot. And the lessons we've had, we've begun by just surveying the New Testament and learning about all these different types of baptism. That's what we've accomplished so far. And one of the main goals we've had, though, always kind of at the end is just really, really focusing in on the church's practice of water baptism. That's mostly what we think of. And so we've learned about all these other types of baptism and what they mean, what they signify. We ended last time, right before our break, with this kind of large survey. And we looked at every verse in the New Testament that mentions water baptism. So we just, this big survey, and we kind of cracked open the door in understanding what water baptism is supposed to mean and signify. I mean, the church's practice of water baptism, it's one of the defining marks of Christianity, right? The past 2,000 years. But that's not been without some controversy and disagreement because not all agree what baptism signifies. So we've studied, or at least we've surveyed every New Testament verse on baptism. And we've made some important like general overall observations But now we want to dive deeper and really start making some interpretations. You know, what exactly is the significance of water baptism for the church? What does it do? Why did Jesus command this practice? Does it have value in itself or is it just symbolic? We want to kind of enter this discussion and try and find out. There's three main views on like the meaning or significance of baptism. That's the the sacramental view the covenantal view, and the symbolic view. And so we're going to devote this week, next two weeks, just one lesson to each of these three views, just to explore, you know, what other people believe about baptism, and what does the Bible say, and why. So with that being said, we're going to start today with the sacramental view of baptism. This is most associated with the Catholic Church. It's also the position of the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Anglican Church, and some Lutheran churches. And just out of curiosity, has anyone heard of the sacramental view of baptism, or as it's otherwise called, baptismal regeneration? Has anyone even like heard of that, somewhat familiar with that? Just a few? Well, let's start them just like a summary of baptismal regeneration, just regeneration by baptism. Like, what is this? For some of you, it sounds like this is brand new. So what is this? And like, what do they teach? And the basic question we're asking is like, does baptism actually do something? What's the point of baptism? Does it have a special function? So you're going to find everybody agrees, at the least, it's symbolic. Everybody believes there's some symbolism to baptism. Catholics and others who hold the sacramental view, they believe baptism symbolizes salvation, symbolizes washing away of sins, symbolizes the new birth. But they believe baptism is more than just symbolic. They believe it actually does something to us. It's an efficacious act. So you got to kind of go back to the the Catholic understanding of the sacraments. You heard that before, I, I bet a lot of you. Sacraments are these little outward signs they teach that both symbolize and accomplish inward grace. And so these are little rituals that you perform that actually, they're they're actual vehicles of God's grace. And so they believe, for example, that baptism symbolizes the washing away of our sins and actually accomplishes the washing away of our sins. 
that physical baptism with water, that's, that's the means of our actual spiritual cleansing. Also, they believe baptism symbolizes our rebirth, our new birth in Christ. And they also believe that baptism actually accomplishes our rebirth, our regeneration. That's where the term baptismal regeneration came from, that this birth to new life, they believe, comes through physical water baptism. So clearly, you can see that they see baptism as more than just symbolic. Now, with this view, believing that baptism accomplishes so much, you might wonder, like, like, do they do they believe baptism is required for salvation? I mean, if baptism, if it's actually bringing you forgiveness and making you born again, kind of sounds like that'd be required for salvation. Well, for those who hold the sacramental view, yes, they do believe, indeed, you must be baptized, water baptized to be saved. This is required for salvation. So let's take this just a little bit further, and I want to give you the official Catholic teaching on baptism. You know, Catholics aren't the only one, ones who believe this, but they're like the main proponents, so we're just going to interact with what they teach. So here's a bit on Catholic teaching on baptismal regeneration. I'm just going to straight out of their own catechism. Why not? So baptism, it's, it's the first of their seven sacraments. It must take place first. It's what gives you access to the grace of God and all the rest of the sacraments. You want to obtain more grace, so have, you have to start with baptism. What does baptism signify? I'm going to quote, these are sections in the catechism. So like 1213, that's like a section of the catechism, right? So 1213 says, quote, through baptism, we are freed from sin and reborn as sons of God. We become members of Christ, are incorporated into the church, and made sharers in her mission. Baptism is the sacrament of regeneration through water in the word, end quote. So through baptism, we enter the church, we're united to Christ, we're freed from sin. Now, if you weren't clear with that language, here's a few more. Section 1215, baptism, quote, signifies and actually brings about the birth of water and the spirit without which no one can enter the kingdom of God, end quote. And then 1227 says, quote, through the Holy Spirit, baptism is a bath that purifies, justifies, and sanctifies, end quote. And so to them, water baptism, it really is the mechanism that brings you into true salvation, That faith in Jesus alone is not quite enough, but it has to be accompanied by the waters of baptism to bring you into Christ and into the church. Now, 1256 says, normally, baptism is performed by a priest or a bishop, but technically, anyone can baptize anyone else. Even a non-baptized person can legitimately baptize someone else, they teach, so long as they use that Trinitarian formula. And that just shows you to them, like, the power is really just in this act. You just got to do the deed. You have to perform the sacrament. That's where the power is. They say, 1257, quote, God has bound salvation to the sacrament of baptism, end quote. That's pretty clear, and that's what they mean. They're, they're bound together, baptism, salvation. You might wonder, what about people who seem to be saved, seem like they went to heaven, but they weren't baptized? And can you think of a biblical example of someone who seemed to have gone to heaven but was not water baptized? Thief on the cross, right? Catholics talk about this, and they make an exception for martyrs. And people who were converted and then die shortly thereafter never had a chance to be water baptized. And 1258 says such converts underwent a baptism of blood in their martyrdom. And that was essentially the same thing as a water baptism. They'll take it, basically, is what they're saying. They make an exception for those people. Now, the primary proof text, text Catholics use for this, we'll see later, is Titus 3, 5, where it says God saves us by the washing of regeneration. And that doesn't mention baptism, but they just take that word washing and say, well, that, that has to be baptism. And so baptism is regeneration. God saves us by this washing of regeneration. And that through water baptism, we're regenerated. And regeneration is often associated with two concepts, right? New birth and cleansing from defilement of sin. And Catholics believe water baptism actually accomplishes both. 
1263 says, quote, by baptism, all sins are forgiven, original sin and all personal sins, as well as all punishment for sin, end quote. In 1265, baptism not only purifies from all sins, but also makes the convert a new creature, and that's new birth. And so you should also note, Catholics practice infant baptism. Infants are baptized into the faith of the church because you want to secure for them this saving grace as early as possible. They just got to go through the water, and so let's, let's do it as quickly as possible. Because unbaptized children either go to hell or to purgatory because they have no cleansing from original sin. Now, next week, we're actually going to talk in great detail about infant baptism. So we'll save that for next week. But Catholics essentially treat infant baptism like a vaccine for original sin. We all got original sin. You need your vaccine. And, and infant baptism is kind of like that for, for uh, babies. But overall, though, you can see in the sacramental view, as taught by Catholics, that you know, faith in Jesus, that's not quite enough for salvation. Now, that's required but so is water baptism. You got to keep in mind that for Catholics, salvation is less of an event and more of a process. It's not a confidence, but a hope. Like you hope you're saved. You hope you're going to be saved, but you you don't know till it actually happens, till you die and and you wake up and you're in heaven. And they believe that salvation is based on God's grace, but that grace is conditioned and accessed through these sacraments. And these sacraments are essentially works we must perform to gain God's grace in the hope that we'll be saved in the end. And so you can see they're, they're really blending a faith and works. At the very least, for them, baptism is the first and foremost of these works. Now, I trust most of you aren't surprised since we're Protestants and we clearly and strongly hold to salvation by faith alone apart from any works, that it shouldn't surprise you we, we don't agree with the Catholic view here. But before we discuss you know, the problems with baptismal regeneration, let me give you a few of the verses they use to support it. So here's a little bit of biblical support for baptismal regeneration. Now keep in mind, for the Catholic Church, as always, a lot of what they believe is not based on Scripture, but on church tradition. That's an equal authority to them. The fathers, the councils, that, that's just as authoritative as the Bible. But they do point out in the catechism, several verses keep popping up that they will reference. So I'll give them to you. We'll talk about them shortly. First, I'm just going to read them. Mark 16, 16 says, He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. But he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. John 3, 5. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, obviously, they take born of water to be baptism. Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so they link their being baptized with receiving forgiveness of sins. Acts 22.16 uh, where Ananias, Paul's recounting his conversion, where Ananias said to him, uh, Now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. It's another link between baptism and washing away of sins. And then lastly, 1 Peter 3.21, which says, Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there's a statement you've got to understand. We'll do that shortly, but it straight up says, baptism now saves you. 1 Peter 3.21, we'll talk about that. Now, on a surface level, you might see how some of these verses could seemingly support the notion that baptism is connected to salvation and to the forgiveness of sins. And so these verses do need to be studied and, and explained. If that's not the case, like, what does that mean? And so we're going to do that. We're not going to so much interact with, you know, Catholic tradition and church fathers and councils, but really just what the Bible says about baptism. So we're going to go back over these verses and talk about them. 
So we'll move on next to really a critique of baptismal regeneration. If if we don't believe this, why not? And we, we do not adhere to baptismal regeneration, that it is a false and quite problematic view and distortion of the gospel. Why do we disagree? Well, two main reasons. First, they show a misunderstanding of regeneration. And second, a misinterpretation of key verses. Misunderstanding of regeneration and then a misinterpretation of these baptism verses. And so let's just talk about those two points now. We're actually going to start, before we get to those verses, with you know, a misunderstanding of regeneration. Just, you guys help me out. Again, we've, we've already kind of talked about it, but, you know, what is regeneration? What, what is it, what does it mean to say we're regenerated? What's that term teach in scripture? Born again, made alive, spiritual birth, right? It's a new creature. Very good. And we, we were dead, spiritually dead, and we were coming alive. We're being reborn. Very good. So regeneration speaks of just new spiritual life being imparted to the dead sinner. It's a spiritual rebirth. It's a spiritual recreation. It's a spiritual resurrection. It's all kind of in regeneration, right? Now, there's many aspects to the doctrine of regeneration. We could, we could study them all. But we're just going to focus on one point that bears on this conversation. Namely that we are not in control of regeneration. That we are not in control of regeneration. That it's clearly willed by the Father and His sovereign grace. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, to say that regeneration is tied to baptism, that's to say that we are ultimately in control of it. That we can make it happen just by dunking someone underwater. But that is not what Scripture teaches about the new birth. It is not an act we perform by our will. It's a supernatural act that God performs by his will. So just the fact that, I forgot which one, but their catechism says that, you know, baptism is the sacrament of regeneration, that they're tying regeneration to baptism, should already send up like at least yellow flags because that, that should be problematic. Let me give you a few verses on you know, kind of establishing this point that we are in no way in control of regeneration. John 1.13, it says, We became children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And he's saying how our birth into God's family, it didn't come by lineage, by human effort, or even by human will. It came by, he says, God's will. Not the will of man, but the will of God. God's effort and will, not ours. John 3, 8. And after teaching that you must be born again to enter the kingdom, Jesus says, you know, he says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit, being born again, born of the spirit, the same thing. And the point he's making though is you're not in control of the spirit. The wind blows where it wishes. It's going to move through people as the Spirit wishes. And, and you can't see it. And you're not in control of it. All you can see are the effects. Like on a windy day, you can't see the wind. It's unpredictable. But you know it's been there because you see the tree moving. You see the effects of the wind after it's come through. And so is the new birth. John 5.21. Jesus said, Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life. Even so, the son also gives life to whom he wishes. Pretty clear, right? Who's going to get new life? Well, whomever the son wishes. It's bound up to his will. It's just what it says. The son is in control. Colossians 2.13 says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that he made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our transgressions. You have the Old Testament imagery of our unregenerate nature, this uncircumcision of the heart, that we were dead, uncircumcised in heart, but God made us alive. Dead people can't respond. They can't do anything to affect their birth or resurrection. 
This was a birth from above. That's what being born again literally means, born from above, at least in John 3. But God made us alive and by his sovereign will. We got James 1, 17 and 18, where he says God is the source of all good things and that in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. If you remember when we preached through James, that phrase brought us forth is actually regeneration terminology in the Greek, that God brought us forth. He brought us to life. It says in the exercise of his will, God's will. And then lastly, 1 Peter 1, 3, it says, God, the father, according to his mercy, caused us to be born again to a living hope. The, the clear causality there that we were just passive, completely passive, but God caused us to be born again. So it's pretty clear. It should already be clear that regeneration is a work of God, not a work of man. It's not accomplished per the will of man, but per the will of God. And we are not in control of God's will. So to tie together baptism with regeneration essentially means we're effectively in control of God's will. It means we are the ones who affect regeneration. It also means, for example, that if you were to withhold baptism from someone, you have the power to withhold regeneration. They could say they believe in Jesus all they want, but until you or someone baptizes them, they're not born again. They're not alive. But, you know, that whole notion and everywhere that goes just completely foreign to the concept of regeneration in Scripture. If you want to know what the real instrumental cause of regeneration is, it's not baptism. It's the preaching of the gospel. God uses the preaching of his word to open blind eyes. The external call is what we call it. The external call is the only thing needed. And when the external call goes out, it's the preaching of the gospel. God can choose, per his will, to at that same moment issue the internal call. And that's the call, this divine summons to new life. That's the new birth. We don't control that. But God just tells us, just preach to everybody all the time, and and per his will, he will issue that divine summons and bring people to life. But scripture clearly teaches that. James 1.18, again, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Or 2 Thessalonians 2.14 says, you were called through our gospel. 1 Peter 1.23-25, that we were born again, through imperishable seed. What's that talking about? He says the living and enduring word of God, the word that was preached to you. The only instrument the New Testament connects to regeneration is the preaching of the gospel, not water baptism, just the preaching of the gospel. That's the mechanism God sovereignly uses to bring people to life. God has put his power to save and regenerate dead sinners Not in a water bath, but in his word. That we must be washed with the water of his word to be saved. That's Ephesians 5.26. And baptism, baptism is just the symbol of that cleansing. And it comes later, but it does not precede or affect regeneration. So already, just by studying regeneration, we would never expect a work like water baptism to be tied to regeneration, that they can't occur without one another. It's just foreign to the teaching of regeneration in in the New Testament. It's per God's grace alone, and it it brings you to life, we believe, even before faith and repentance. It's a real sovereign act of God. So that's that's just the first part, and it's a right understanding of regeneration taught in Scripture. seems to already preclude baptism being tied to regeneration. We would not expect this. Now, second part here to kind of finish it off. What about those verses? But here we'll, we'll have the second point, just a misinterpretation of key verses. So let's do some Bible study now. You can open your Bibles to Mark 16. We'll kind of go through these. You can follow along or you can open your Bible. And let's kind of go one by one here. Mark 16. And of course, most of you know, but in case you're new on Sunday nights, you guys can raise a hand any time. You can ask a question, 
throw in a comment uh, in case you're new, but we'll keep going. Yeah, Ed? See, that's why, that's why I say it every now and then, right? Just for those people who are a little scared. Oh, so this question was, is there a difference between like the word preached and the word communicated written? Uh, only in that you're missing kind of the, the pathos or the passion of a preacher in delivering it, but the content can be literally the same. So God can use written material as long as it communicates the gospel. If someone reads it, someone can read, well, then they can receive that just as well. And God has used written communication to affect salvation. We've got plenty of testimonies about that just from the Bible itself. A guy in seminary who's in the Marines after 9-11 and not a believer, just picked up the Bible they gave out one day and just read it and read it. And he came to genuine saving knowledge of Christ and saving faith just by not talking to anybody, but just by reading his Bible. And he, he got it right. He was the real deal. And that can happen through gospel tracts or gospel books, uh, just as well as a preached sermon. So long as it, it's a clear communication of the gospel message, God can use that, that external call to issue his internal call when he sees fit. All right, so Mark 16. The verse in question is verse 16, which reports Christ saying, he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Now, I mentioned first, first things first, you see in your Bible, most likely starting at verse 9 to the end of the chapter, it's in brackets. I mentioned first that the, the passage has huge textual problems. We can't go into that. I preached a whole sermon on that and a whole Sunday night series on that called How We Got the Bible. As you can download like my Sunday evening or my, my old uh, Mark sermon, the very last sermon when I preached through Mark, it's a whole sermon on this showing why it's very well documented that this was not part of Mark's gospel. That's huge textual problems. If you want to learn more about that, talk to me later. But at the very least, you don't build theology off of these verses alone. Just keep that in mind. But even still, we're not going to talk about that or worry about that right now, because even still, verse 16 doesn't teach baptism is required for salvation. And that's clear simply from the lack of parallelism in the verse. You see how that? You see how the verse is not as parallel as you'd expect. See what I'm saying? If this verse was going to teach baptism was required for salvation, it would need to say this: He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has not believed and not been baptized shall be condemned. If it said that, this would be teaching baptism is certainly required for salvation. Or it would need to say this: you know, He who believes but is not baptized, is still condemned. That would likewise teach, well, okay, baptism is clearly required for salvation. doesn't say that. No verse says that. This verse just fails to talk about people who believe but are not baptized. Are those people saved or not saved? But look, if there are some people who believe and they're not baptized and they're condemned, that clearly teaches like, well, belief is not enough, right? That they believe, but they're still condemned. Well, I guess... Faith alone is not enough. They need to be baptized. But this verse doesn't say that. Again, no verse says that. Baptism is merely being mentioned here as just the chief characterizing mark of a believer. And that's true. Baptism is the main defining mark of a true believer. Jesus made it the primary sign of discipleship. And in the early church, confession of faith was followed immediately by baptism so baptism could be seen as the mark of faith. It is. But this verse is not theologically teaching that the act of baptism is itself required for salvation. Or that the lack of baptism would condemn. You know, what saves and what condemns is the presence of faith or the absence of faith. This verse teaches that. That he who does not believe is condemned. That the real linchpin here is faith. Just your presence of belief or absence of belief is what saves and condemns, not the presence or absence of baptism. Ruthann? Yes. Yep. Yeah. 
So Ruth's question is, you know, how do they connect this with infant baptism? Because it says, who has believed and been baptized will be saved. But an infant can't believe. So can they be saved? Like they're only baptized, but they're not believing. Uh, It's a good question. One, we're going to answer that in full next week with some Protestants who practice infant salvation, or rather infant baptism, uh, because babies can't believe. So why are they being baptized? That's the covenantal view I mentioned. You know, I'm not certain how a Catholic would answer that. I know that they believe that the only reason a baby needs to be baptized is for original sin. It's that cleansing of original sin. And so they they don't need to believe. They just need that original sin cleansed. They know that when they come of age, if they're baptized, they will believe. That's what they call confirmation. That's a confirming of the faith that was implanted to them when they were baptized. But beyond that, I'd have to search more like how, what they would say about that. Um, I can't answer that. Okay. But next week, you'll get the bigger story of just why some people believe in infant baptism nonetheless, because they can't believe, but why are they being baptized? Come back next week. But again, just keep in mind, nowhere in Scripture does it say that he who is not baptized will be condemned. That would be a statement that would be enough to, for us to believe, well, baptism is required for salvation. But it never says that. Okay, let's go to John 3. John chapter 3, Jesus and Nicodemus. We have to go there because this is like one of the main proof texts that Catholics will use. John 3 verse 5. Jesus talking to Nicodemus. He says in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, most certainly in this text, water does not refer to water baptism. And this is a a classic case of reading into a passage and just not allowing the content and the context to speak for itself. Because this one's obvious, but let's go through it. So first, just because water is mentioned in the passage, that does not mean it's referring to baptism. That's like every time the word oil is mentioned in the Bible, it, it must be referring to the Holy Spirit. No, you're taking symbolism and typology way too far if you do that. The text and the context will have to make clear if water symbolizes something and what it symbolizes or not. But you just can't import a preconceived notion that if there's water, it must be baptism. It doesn't say baptism. It could be. It could not be. You just can't assume because this says water. Second, if Jesus wanted us to believe that baptism was required for salvation... One, that's a big deal. So you think he would have just said baptism, right? Unless you're baptized, unless one is baptized, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Like, why not make it like crystal clear? And in all of his other teaching and preaching, we read the gospel, the whole gospel of John, you know, salvation is always tied to faith. He who believes has eternal life. John 3, 16, like the whole gospel, it's always tied to faith. Never another connection apart from this verse, hypothetically, never another connection to baptism. It's not like a huge oversight if Jesus was really trying to teach baptism required for salvation. Like, how about the other hundred times you mentioned faith alone? Like, I think you'd throw one in there. But if he wanted to talk about baptism, he could have just said baptism. He, he taught on baptism enough. He, he baptized people, or his disciples did. Third, it would be completely far-fetched to think that Jesus is referring to baptism in this conversation with Nicodemus. Let's bring in the context, right? Because even Catholics believe that Old Testament believers did not need to be baptized to be saved, which is true. But realize, you know, Jesus, he's talking to Nicodemus. They're still under the Old Covenant. He's telling them how you must enter the kingdom, by water, by the Spirit. We see in verse 10, though, Jesus fully expects Nicodemus to know what he's talking about, right? He's, you know, using this new birth analogy. Nicodemus, he's clueless, like, what, you have to crawl into my mother's womb, be born a second time? And Jesus said, verse 10, are you a teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? He's like, uh, you should know this. This is not something new and earth shattering. This is something you should know as a teacher of Israel, teacher of the law, the Old Testament, You should know what he's talking about here. And for that very reason, 
Jesus would never have expected Nicodemus to know being born of water is baptism. Baptism is not in the Old Testament. It was not practiced until very recently in the time of Christ. And being a teacher of Israel, he's expecting him to know the Old Testament. He's not going to expect him to know he's talking about baptism. If indeed he's talking about baptism, that just makes no sense. It makes it extremely unlikely that he was referring to baptism. And then fourthly, really the context for understanding the, the, the notion of the water and the spirit comes from the Old Testament, which is what Nicodemus should have known. Hey, we've said this verse, I think, many times at this church. So does anyone know that the primary Old Testament passage that really speaks of this new birth and this water and the spirit? Does anyone happen to know it? Ezekiel is correct. 36. Close enough. 25 through 27, where it mentions how in the connection of the coming new covenant, the Messiah is going to bring, that God will sprinkle clean water on his people, and that's to purify them to, of their defilement of sin. He'll give them new hearts. He'll cause his spirit to dwell within them. And that's no doubt a reference to new birth. And that's something God gives apart from faith or repentance or baptism. The Catholics are right in seeing regeneration here. That's exactly right. Jesus is talking that you, you've got to be regenerated. You've got to be spiritually reborn to enter the kingdom of heaven. But they're just wrong in connecting that to water baptism in any way. That what we'll continue to see, water baptism is the legit symbol of that rebirth. But it doesn't cause that rebirth. Just God causes that rebirth. He just makes you alive. Not the water. So anyway, the water here is, is a reference to just the new covenant work of God that he was going to do through the Messiah in sending the spirit of regeneration, this cleansing and this uh, renewal. Now let's go from John 3.5 to Titus 3.5, which is the second you know, main proof text they use, Titus 3.5. So I'll read it for you, Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Titus is short, so in like your New Testament, it's like even like half a page or one page, so it'd be hard to find unless you really got it nailed down. So I'll read Titus 3, 5. It says, He saved us, God saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of of regeneration, and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So, this is another main text Catholics would use to support water baptism for uh, salvation. But, like, once again, nothing in the text or the context mentions water baptism. Again, they've got the term washing being used, and they're just saying, well, that, that must be baptism. But just because the term washing is used, does not mean it's a reference to baptism. You know, regeneration itself is a spiritual washing. You know, per the, old, the, the, the promise in Ezekiel of the new covenant, this was going to be a spiritual washing, a spiritual cleansing. We're purified and made new creatures. That's a spiritual reality that takes place according to God's mercy, apart from our works. Baptism later would become the symbol of that spiritual washing, but to say that baptism is the mechanism of that spiritual washing, that's to add works as a condition of salvation. And it says that we are ultimately in control of salvation. We're in control of God's grace. But as we've been seeing, that, that just violates the very nature and definition of grace. And by the way, it has so many secondary problems when you just open that door to adding any work or condition to faith. For example, if baptism is required for salvation... Uh, that if we are in control of God's saving grace like that, it means a person cannot be saved unless another person is present. Your salvation is conditioned on another person. If you're just by yourself in the desert, you, I, I, don't, I don't know if they'd say you can baptize yourself. You need someone to baptize you. 
And so are you, are you just not going to be regenerated until you can find someone and find some water? I mean, I don't know how they would answer that, but it just leads to a lot of rabbit trail holes in the system. What's ironic here in Titus 3.5, though, is that this verse outright says God saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. That there are no deeds that contributed to our salvation. There's nothing we do that, that grants us salvation. This is a grace gift. He saved us apart from any works. Salvation is of the free, unconditional grace and mercy of God. And it's not conditioned on any work we have to perform, and that includes baptism, which I don't really see how you can get around calling that a work. It's clearly a deed that must be done. Now, up next, we're going to hear a pair of verses in Acts. Now, these grammatically can go either way, that these can be taken to read and connect baptism to the forgiveness of sins. Not regeneration, but just the forgiveness of sins. They can go either way. So these we got to look at closely as well. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. He's got a few more to go here. Acts chapter 2. Peter's sermon after Pentecost 2.38. And after they heard his sermon, they were pierced to the heart. They said to Peter, brethren, what shall we do? Verse 38, Peter said to them, repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Meaning of this passage really centers around the word for, the preposition for in the Greek. And that has a range of meaning. It can mean in order to, it can mean as a result of, and the context is going to have to determine which it means. So for example, there's really two main options here. What does Peter mean when he says, now be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins? It could mean, be baptized in order to get the forgiveness of sins, it could mean that. But it could also mean be baptized because of the forgiveness of your sins. It could mean that as well. The, the grammar could legitimately go either way. And, you know, the verse itself doesn't really tell us much. It's not going to settle it just by the grammar alone. So you, you branch out into the context. Verse 41, I think, is significant where, you know, the whole crowd heard his message, but only some received it. Those who received it were those who believed it. Only those people were then baptized. It's the ones who received and believed who were then baptized. Baptism clearly came as a consequence of their faith. And so much in scripture connects faith to salvation. It seems like they were baptized not to secure their salvation, but in light of their salvation. And, you know, the, the, the surrounding context helps as well. You know, I'll just summarize here, but you know, chapter 3, 19, chapter 4, verse 12, you have two following messages by Peter, and he's preaching salvation by faith and repentance. Very clear. No mention of baptism. Like chapter 4, verse 12, he says, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. He connects your, the forgiveness of your sins to repentance. Now, if baptism is necessary, that's a pretty dangerously incomplete message. Also, chapter 10, verse 43, Peter preaches to Gentiles. There's no mention of baptism. Just belief in Christ alone is all that's connected to the forgiveness of sins. And then as a result, these Gentiles, they believe. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. They're saved. And then they're baptized. That's kind of a problem. They, they shouldn't be filled with the Holy Spirit and saved until they're baptized. But they're very clearly filled with the Spirit, saved, before they're baptized. And so, look, you just take into consideration the bulk of Peter's gospel preaching. And he's always connecting forgiveness to faith and repentance. And baptism in the book of Acts always comes as a consequence of faith and repentance. We studied that in the last lesson. And so in Acts 2.38, the verse itself doesn't really tell us either way. 
But it's simply more consistent to understand Peter telling them to be baptized, not to gain forgiveness, but because of forgiveness. This is going to be for those who've received and believed the message. Now be baptized. This is how you identify with the Christ who has forgiven you. The same reasoning goes for the second passage here. So go to Acts 22. Acts 22, verse 16. This is Paul recounting his own conversion later on. And as he's converted, he was blinded. Christ visited him and you know, brought him to salvation, to new life. Later, he meets a man, Ananias, whom the Lord sent to restore his sight, if you recall. And so verse 16, these are the words of Ananias. He's saying to Paul, now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, it's actually a a simple text. It's centered on this this participle, calling on his name. It's what we call an aorist, middle participle. And so it can be translated, having called on his name. That the Lord Jesus visited Paul directly. And Paul heard the gospel directly from Jesus, not from Ananias. Ananias didn't preach to Paul. Jesus did. In Galatians 1, 11 and 12, Paul says that. That Paul had come to new life already through the power of God. He had already called on the name of Jesus. And Paul was already called a brother by Ananias when he first met him to pray for him to receive sight. And so Ananias, he's clearly already recognized Paul as having been chosen by God. Paul's already called on the name of Jesus. And so for that reason, there's no need to delay in his baptism. Now, what about the connection, though, between being baptized and washing away sins? Well, like I said, again, grammatically, the the meaning of this connection is undecided. This verse alone won't tell us much either way. But So we're left again to just take into consideration Paul's preaching of the gospel elsewhere. And most notably, his own gospel story, his own conversion. Paul recounts his conversion several times. Acts 22, Galatians 1, Acts 26. Acts 26, 12 through 18 is significant because Paul recounts his conversion again. He doesn't even mention Ananias in that passage. He doesn't mention baptism at all. He recalls how he was saved. Jesus visited him, opened his eyes, and then sent him to preach to the Gentiles. And then the verse we read this morning, 2618, you know, what, what was that message that Jesus gave Paul to preach to the Gentiles? He told them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who've been sanctified by faith in me. Basically, Jesus visited Paul, made him spiritually alive, and then said, now go preach forgiveness of sins by faith in me. There's no mention of baptism in connection to that forgiveness, that Paul neither here nor anywhere else connects the remissions of sins to baptism but all us to faith and repentance. And so again, back to our verse 22:16, it's only consistent with Paul's teaching everywhere else to understand that, that his own water baptism was merely the, the symbol of him being cleansed and being forgiven. It's a cleansing which had already taken place through faith, but it was time for him to be water baptized as the symbol that accompanies new faith per discipleship. And so his water baptism was not the actual means of his cleansing, though. It's just simply being consistent. Ed? Absolutely. So his question is, notion of cleansing from someone with an old, Covenant Old Testament mindset, you know, what, what's kind of behind that cleansing? Is it like ritual washing? It's very much ritual washing. Uh, cleansing is all about defilement. 
defilement, something that's defiled means it no longer meets your standard of acceptance. You've got to separate it. A person was defiled, you're outside the camp. A priest was defiled, you can't enter the tabernacle. You had to go through some ceremonial sacrifice and cleansing for that defilement to lift, for you to be ceremonially cleansed. God did this, of course, all as a picture. He's not concerned about the dirt on your hands as opposed to the the dirt on your heart and uh, the stain of sin that defiles us. And so we look forward to the the greater cleansing, like Jesus. Like, why don't your disciples wash their hands? Remember Mark 7? He's like, well, who who cares about that? That's that's your law, not God's. God God wants you to have a clean heart before him. Uh, But you can't do that by yourself. Can you give yourself spiritual heart surgery? Can you cleanse your, your nature? No, you can't. But the promise of regeneration is just that. This is a clean nature, a cleanse and undefiled nature. That's, that's divine. That's supernatural. We can't do that. But that, that's kind of the whole point. It comes from God. Uh, going through a motion of water baptism is not going to accomplish that. Just Again, it's just foreign to everything we've studied. Uh, that comes from God alone. But so in two weeks, we're going to study that symbolic view. Baptism really is the symbol of that cleansing. That's what gives it so much meaning and value. Like this is a real big deal symbol of what God did for us in salvation. That's why baptism does mean so much. Okay, let's want to finish close to on time. So let's quickly do a couple more. So 1 Peter chapter 3. Let's just include this one and then maybe wrap it up. 1 Peter 3.21. We might come back to this next week. I'm not sure yet, but for now, First Peter 3.21. So you use the analogy of, you know, uh, the ark in the days of Noah. And he's really going to compare Christ to that ark, that refuge of safety, enter the ark to be saved. He says, verse 21, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Trying to simplify things, like the the bigger passage here is very complicated. But verse 21 itself, and what he's saying on baptism is actually pretty simple. And some latch onto the statement, baptism now saves you. And you know what? That's true. I said in an earlier lesson, we are saved by baptism. I think that was lesson one. Remember, we're saved by baptism, not water baptism. We are not saved by water baptism, but there's another type of baptism that actually saves us. Remember what that baptism is? Baptism in Christ and baptism in the Holy Spirit, which are really two sides of the same coin. This baptism in Christ, that's our union or immersion or identification with Christ. That is what actually saves us. That's what accomplishes our salvation, this union with Christ. And Paul refers to that as our baptism in Christ. That baptism has nothing to do with literal water. That's the the spiritual cleansing, the the rebirth we're talking about. And Peter here, he's talking about the same thing. He's not talking about water baptism. When he says baptism saves us, he's talking about the spiritual rebirth that comes when you enter Christ, the ark. Those who were saved weren't in the water. It's the ones who were in the ark who were saved. And we're saved by our spiritual baptism into Christ. And Peter is connecting baptism with salvation, not water baptism. You see how Peter himself clarifies that he's not talking about taking a bath or getting in water. You see that? Verse 21, baptism now saves you. And he says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. That's water baptism. He's not talking about going underwater. What baptism saves us? Well, the baptism that involves an appeal to God for a good conscience. That we are unclean, we're undefiled, we're guilty in conscience because of our spiritual death. But the baptism that saves us, cleanses us, and cleanses our conscience. And that is none other than the the baptism in Christ. This inner man cleansing. He's talking about regeneration. And so actually, this passage really nails the issue. It says precisely what we've been trying to be saying, but it also exposes why there's confusion. If every time you see the word baptism in the New Testament, you think water baptism, you're going to get things wrong, and you're going to get yourself into trouble. You're going to get water baptism wrong. 
And also, this verse shows the confusion some people have between the symbol and the reality. Because, look, we really are saved by a type of baptism or immersion or identification. It's just that it's baptism in Christ. Spiritual union in Christ is what saves us. And that comes by faith alone. The symbol of that cleansing of regeneration is water baptism. Yes. But the New Testament is clear in separating the symbol from the reality. The reality is our our union with Christ by faith. And water baptism is, is the symbol of that. The ordinance that celebrates that. And the case is just too solid that salvation is not affected by any work. It comes as a gift of God's grace, which leads to our faith and repentance. Anything else is really a dangerous subversion of the gospel and a confusion of the gospel. Evan? Okay, so I know you're new. We are. No, no. So baptism of the Holy Spirit, yes, it's very much related to baptism in Christ. We did a full lesson, lesson and a half on baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I don't think you're around for that. So go on our website. You got to go back. I think it's lesson two and lesson three and a half. And you'll get the full story on that. So it's like yes and no. If you're talking like Pentecostal baptism of the Spirit, not related. If you're talking what the scripture says about baptism of the Spirit, very much related. But for more on that, like we'll talk after maybe. And Download that, download that lesson, you'll get it all. So when all is said and done, though, you know, we want to rightly appreciate the role of baptism in the church, but we, we're not to make too much of baptism, of water baptism. And we certainly can't add it as a condition to salvation. That just muddies the waters of the gospel, which is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, apart from any works. And the testimony of Scripture is just crystal clear that that God requires from us for salvation just faith and repentance, which are anti-works. They're confession that I can't do anything except Christ. So I'm just going to believe in him. They're anti-works. We see that over and over again, though. It's a near endless list. And baptism, baptism should be the first work that follows salvation. It should be the first deed that you do after salvation. But we need to clearly separate the two and understand that baptism is not resulting in our salvation or contributing to our salvation. It's just the symbol. I know we're just a hair over time, but as a final verse to just seal this up, can you go to 1 Corinthians 1 and then we'll end here? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, Julie? It's what comes when we repent. Yeah, an appeal to God is, yeah, you're right, is akin to repentance where we're asking for, we're calling out for this cleansing in Christ. And as we repent and turn from our sins, we gain the assurance of it. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1. So you remember the Corinthian church, they had conflict, they were in little factions. And Paul is basically rebuking them for their division. Look at verse 14. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that none of you would say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did also baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. But look at this, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. That's a big verse that just kills baptismal regeneration. Now, if baptism is required for salvation, Paul would never have said that. He would, he would have made baptism his standard practice, and he never would have downplayed the significance of baptism in connection with preaching the gospel. If baptism is required, as they say, like it, it is just as important as preaching the gospel. But he's clearly putting down baptism just enough to show that No, the the power is in the preaching of the word. That's all of 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, by the way. Baptism, well, that's a symbol after you're saved. The the power is not in baptism. The power is in the preaching. And so, as Paul does, it shows we must not make too much of baptism. We want to put it in its right place. It has a high place. We're trying to get to that, that we want to hold it high as the defining mark 
of a new Christian, then it really matters. But its significance is in its symbolism, as we'll see in a few lessons, not in actually bringing about regeneration. So we had to end on that verse. It just says it too clearly. Okay, our time is, as always, up and a little bit over. What can you do? I guess you can walk out, but whatever. Let's go ahead and end a word of prayer. Any more questions, you can come see me, and uh, we'll go from there. Father in heaven, we, we bless your name tonight, and thank you again for your word, this Bible study. Your word is clear in what it teaches, and we're, we're grateful for the hope of the true gospel, and that our appeal to you for a, a clean conscience is just by your grace and mercy alone. There's nothing we have to do. There's no work or sacrament we have to perform to gain or secure your grace, that your grace is not conditional. It's not behind a firewall of, of deeds. It's just free. It's unconditional. It's lavished upon us in Christ comes by your free and sovereign will that we don't fully understand, but we will thank you for, and those of us who've received it, we thank you for it indeed. We appreciate baptism as this amazing symbol of what was really done for us, the baptism that saved us, which is, which is our union with Christ and the spiritual cleansing he brought about through his death and resurrection. We praise you for that rebirth, and may we just be thankful for it and walk worthy of it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.